0: You're listening to Startups for Good, where we explore high-growth and high-values ventures. I am your host, Miles Lasseter, three-time founder turned investor. Join us to hear stories of entrepreneurs. Join us to be inspired to be a founder or to work for a startup. Join us to be part of a community that believes startups can be a force for good. Welcome to Startups for Good. I'm Miles Lasseter, your host. On this episode, we speak with Christy Legali, who's the founder and CEO of Rebellious Foods. She's a mechanical engineer with nearly 20 years of engineering experience and a holder of five patents in manufacturing technology. So she spent this career in aerospace, working on commercial airplanes and spacecraft design, manufacturing, and served as a project manager for a $10 million R&D effort for the 777X wing manufacture unit at Boeing Commercial Airlines. I don't know what that is, but it sounds very fancy and complicated. She's taken that engineering prowess into making plant-based food much more cost-effective, be able to manufacture at scale and deliver healthy food that doesn't require industrial agriculture. In making a transition from aerospace into the food industry. She served as senior scientist for Good Food Institute and uncovered technical barriers in the development of plant-based meat and cultured meat. She's got a bachelor degree in mechanical engineering and organizational psychology and a master's of science in mechanical engineering. We talked about waiting to find your intractable problem, wanting to find that before becoming a founder and, and holding off until finding that problem. Uh, Rebellious's theory of change, she lays it out beautifully talks about pivoting during the pandemic, embracing regulation for better innovation, and we also talked about changing industries in your career and how to do that effectively. And a whole lot more. I hope you'll stay tuned. All right, Christy, welcome. Welcome to Startups for Good. Thanks so much for coming on.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Yeah, I'm excited to talk about a lot of things. Where I'd like to start is, why did you decide to be a founder?
1: Yeah, you know, the choice to become a founder is definitely a a life-changing choice, (laughs) and it's something that I've always been interested in. I've always thought that um, being a startup founder was something that I wanted to do ever since I was about... I think probably 18 years old. It was something I wanted to do then, but I actually didn't get become a founder until I was about 40 years old. So it was a a long time. I ended up becoming an aerospace engineer instead. And all the time I had thought to myself, you know, someday I'd really like to start a company. I'd really like to... Use the skills I have as an engineer to make a difference in the world in some intractable problem that really could use a novel solution. And I never really did find exactly the best way to use my time. So I decided to use my time as an aerospace engineer until I found that intractable problem that I could start a company around.
0: And how did you find that problem eventually?
1: Yeah, so the problem that my company, Rebellious Foods, and um, and our corporate based company, Seattle Food Tech, is really tackling is industrial animal agriculture, specifically large scale animal agriculture of um, chickens, broiler chickens, for the production of um, chicken meat. The issue that specifically arises from the chicken production globally is that it is a massive industry, it um, produces a lot of waste. It risks, it is actually the largest and most dangerous risk to another global pandemic. And it is, a, it is an industry that um, both has serious cruelty implications as well as concerns for large scale consumption of chicken is a concern for human health because it's so high in saturated fat. And yet in the United States alone, we produce um, roughly about 50 billion pounds of chicken every single year, mostly because um, it is our go-to protein in the United States.
0: Wow. So many interconnected issues there. There Uh, really are.
1: Animal agriculture is one of those issues that you can, you know, address climate change, human health, animal welfare, pandemic prevention. Um, And so it is one of those like, you know, good shot, you know, moonshot, but good shot um, issues to work on as an entrepreneur.
0: And when you identified this problem, uh, what were the initial steps that you took?
1: Industrial animal agriculture has been around really since it was developed in the late 1940s, and really, really started to scale into the 1950s and early 1960s is when we were really start to see um, industrialization of cows, pigs, chickens, and a little bit of turkeys. So it's been a problem. Industrialization of animal agriculture, moving you know animals from you know old McDonald's farm into something like you know warehouses and massive slaughterhouses and Shipping animals up and down highways is something that has been developing over the last 70 years. It obviously has brought, it's come to the attention of a lot of different advocacy groups, including. You know, obviously animal welfare advocates, but certainly climate change advocates, because you know a lot of people don't realize that animal agriculture is one of the largest contributors to global emissions for greenhouse gas emissions. And um, as a result, even recently, Bill Gates even said that he believes that we should move to 100% quote, synthetic beef um, because of the emissions from the beef industry. Uh, we won't put Bill Gates in charge of our marketing efforts in the world of uh, quote, synthetic beef, but you know, plant-based beef or alternative meats. so it was a it's an important issue to a lot of advocates because of all of the things that all of the problems of industrial animal agriculture. For me personally, I cared about the issue of human health and animal cruelty. I could see my own family consuming large large amounts of meat, uh, meat, dairy, and eggs, and as a result, their health dramatically going down over the you know decades of watching them. Eat too much or be able to not be able to have changed their diet to eat better food. Um, And this is one of the biggest arguments for alternatives to meat is that you can help people eat less meat or eat if they can eat meat products or plant-based meat products that are similar, meaning they replace them one-to-one. Like at our company, we make plant-based chicken nuggets instead of animal-based chicken nuggets. and It can really have a very positive effect on public health. From a public health perspective, you see improvements on the individual level as well as the public health perspective if you can replace animal based meat with plant based meat but also from an animal cruelty perspective there is no no bigger industrialized cruelty on the planet than industrialized animal agriculture particularly to animals Especially because, you know he, you know, luckily, human slavery is largely eschewed by the human population. It's not eradicated, and I certainly wish it was. But the way we treat animals is something that's largely accepted and is becoming less and less acceptable as people understand that that cruelty to animals is is a real moral issue for the human
0: race. Right. So you're laying out all the compelling reasons to take this issue seriously, but those reasons were true decades ago. As you said, uh, I'm curious, you know, with the, the taste barriers that some people have, habit, cost, maybe other things, how did you tackle this?
1: Yeah, so the, I'm really glad that you brought up both the taste barrier and the cost because you're absolutely right. Um, in the United States, we produce over 108 billion pounds of animal-based meat, and yet we actually only produce about one-half of 1% about of that volume, so less than 1 billion pounds uh, versus 108 billion pounds, um, so just less than 100 billion pounds, or pardon me, 1 billion pounds of plant-based meat, and that includes like the Impossible and Beyond Burger, and those products like Impossible, Beyond Morningstar, Tofurky, tend to cost more than the counterpart products that they're trying to replace. So the reason I started this particular company is because my background in aerospace and engineering as well as my background in in manufacturing engineering while I was at the Boeing commercial airplanes, uh, was all about designing tools to manufacture products faster, better, and cheaper. And so I saw an opportunity, given my interest in addressing all of these social and social justice issues, I saw an opportunity to use my skills as an engineer to make plant-based meat faster, better, and cheaper because there simply isn't enough plant-based meat to make a difference in the social issues that we're discussing um, and climate change as well. But um, there is, you know, and there is, and it costs too much to make. Well, those are actually related. Those are both manufacturing issues. And so as a manufacturing engineer and a tooling design engineer, I decided to take my skills from my career in engineering and actually start a company which is called Seattle Food Tech which is our base company for rebellious foods and start a company around this idea that we can make plant-based meat faster, better, and cheaper if only we can design the tools necessary that are appropriate for the production of plant-based meat that thereby make the products more available at much lower cost and an even higher quality than you see in the market today. And so that's, of course, what we do at Rebellious Foods and Seattle Food Tech is we're developing the next generation of plant-based meat production equipment. And we're putting it into operation so that we can sell our products under the name Rebellious Foods as high quality, lower cost products with higher margins for, for our company and at higher volumes than the market has seen in the past.
0: I love the way you've articulated this. It's almost like a theory of change that's laid out and I can see all the pieces up there. I'm curious for you to walk us through how you decided which part of the market to approach, you know, creating those machines, selling them to others, you know, selling to industrial or like, you know, scale uh, food service places, selling to consumers. Are you tackling all three?
1: So the funny thing that the pandemic did to our company is that it actually expanded it instead of shrinking it. And I'll let me explain why. Because you're absolutely right. Our original business model prior to the pandemic was that we were going to use our engineering prowess to develop new technology to make plant-based meat faster, better, and cheaper. And then we, as a manufacturer of these products, using our own technology, our own intellectual property, we're going to use that intellectual property to make our products, our plant-based meat products, and sell them into institutions, schools, hospitals, universities, corporate cafeterias, K through 12 school districts, ballpark stadiums, you name it. And that's exactly what we did. That's exactly what we were doing um, in the early part of 2020. Um, we were actually raising our Series A. We had gotten into some of the biggest food service distributors. We had just sold into 700 school districts between St. Louis and Austin. We had launched a, a new nugget, um, that was for the plant-based nugget that was perfect for the plant based nugget that was perfect for the school lunch program, the national school lunch program. We had just gotten into major stadiums in the Seattle area and then the pandemic hit. So what happened was almost overnight, we lost all of our customers. So that that was obviously a huge blow to our company. It was a blow to us both psychologically, just the realization that pretty much everything you could work for could be just swiped away um, almost overnight, and which is basically what happened. You know, we kept a few customers because we were also serving restaurants. But what we had to do over the course of the next few months during the pandemic was, you know, we had a warehouse full of products that we needed to sell somehow. And so we quickly packaged them up into individual packages and started selling them to mom and top grocery stores. And within a couple months, we had this limited time offer packaging of rebellious nuggets that would normally have been sold to stadiums and dormitories. And so that's what we did in order to to really survive that early part of the pandemic. But it changed us because instead of, you know, as of now, not only are we a company, you know, post pandemic, we we really started to realize that this pandemic was not going to Go away anytime soon. It's still not gone away. Where you know my entire company is basically vaccinated, and it's still not going. You know, our our economy is not going to recover overnight. So we quickly realized that in middle of 2020, and decided that we would go full on into the CPG world, the consumer packaged goods world. And so as a result, this pandemic changed our company a lot because. It it is exactly what you just described. We have three major divisions at Rebellious Foods in Seattle Food Tech. We design design products and we market them through CPG and food service. and, And that's what we call kind of our sales marketing and CPG division. We... Established in 2020, our own manufacturing facility. So we run, operate on a daily basis, a um, pilot scale food production facility an automated food production facility in West Seattle. Come visit us if you're interested in seeing it. And then we also operate a research and development lab, an equipment research and development lab where we are developing automated production equipment that will eventually be deployed onto our production floor in our facility in West Seattle, and then hopefully also be deployed in other production facilities in the future, potentially even licensing that equipment to other companies that can make use of this better method of making plant-based meat and plant-based meat dough. Mm -hmm. So right now, we run a trifecta of companies (laughs) or trifecta company of sales marketing CPG, production and engineering operations, and then equipment research and development. So we're definitely a very fully integrated company, all all crammed into our our cute little food production facility in West Seattle.
0: It sounds like a lot. It sounds very complicated (laughs) to be doing all of that. Where where do you see trade-offs by having three different customer types and, (laughs) and how have you navigated that?
1: Yeah, I mean, so first of all, our production that we do in-house is, you know, are the customers for our production in-house is our brand Rebellious Foods, so they they only make Rebellious Foods products right now. Um, and of course, the customer for our equipment research and development lab is the production facility. So we're integrated in that, la- in that, that methodology. Where we make money right now is through um, sale of our rebellious uh, chicken nugget tender and patty, all plant-based of course. And, um, and then sale of our and nugget, the, the nugget that is meant for the national school lunch program, because there, there are some schools starting to open up and then also through development of products for like fast food companies so you know as you can imagine post pandemic we're pretty shy of just you know focusing on one market we we want to make sure we cover it all and so you know the the way we currently make money is that one avenue that that Production of products and selling them through our brand, Rebellious Foods. It won't be for a few years that we actually license our technology to other companies, but it may not be a few years. It may be like one and a half to two years.
0: Okay. Yeah. I mean, uh, that seems like a way to, to manage it. I understand better now. And uh, it's really impressed that you're, you're able to do all that. Don't just listen, get engaged. You've heard me talking about the startups for good giving circle, and maybe you're wondering how does it work? Go to startupsforgood.com and click on Giving Circle. You'll be able to sign up as a member and choose to make a reoccurring donation, let's say $20 a month or whatever you can afford. We will focus on newer or startup tech nonprofits to provide the initial angel funding to get them off the ground. We will vote on a nonprofit recipient of our grant approximately quarterly. All donations are U.S. tax deductible. So go to startupsforgood.com and click on Giving Circle: I'm curious also when, when I think about the customer types, you know you were talking about school lunches, for example, mm-hmm. um, I'm imagining that they want something different than an individual consumer who may or may not have the flexibility to choose to, to pay a little more for something that they care about. Like what are the things that drive the school lunch purchase type yeah. uh, customer?
1: That, that's an uh, incredibly good insight because you're absolutely right. The um, ability to produce products and to sell into the National School Lunch Program, or what's known also as the Child Nutrition uh, Labeled Products um, Program, for for K through 12 public schools in the United States is monitored and directed by the USDA. So the USDA identifies what products and what kind of ingredients, what kind of commodity ingredients specifically can be used as what are called meat, meat alternatives. And those meat alternatives are the ones that the federal government will reimburse school districts for if they purchase those products instead of say commodity chicken nugget products that are sold into a lot of schools in the United States. Um, So you have to follow the guidelines of the USDA for the National School Lunch Program to make a vegan chicken nugget, a plant-based chicken nugget, that will meet their guidelines. And those guidelines specifically are They have to have the same amino acid profile as chicken. They have to have the, basically the same nutritional, essentially nutritional limits. So the not too much fat, uh, not too much saturated fat, which is not hard because chicken is so high in saturated fat. It's always lower than that. And then it has to have, you know, enriched flour. So there's like um, vitamins and minerals in the breading. And then the most important thing, and this really gets back to why our government is in the business of making food in the first place, is that the U.S. government requires that we produce it from a commodity product, which the only commodity product they will reimburse is soy all of our school lunch program nuggets are required by the usda to be made out of soy so these are soy plant-based chicken nuggets and you know making that product so it fits within the school lunch program is what's necessary for the usda to reimburse those school districts for the purchase of those products so it's a very specific thing now they're really good uh, don't get me wrong just because they're made out of soy and because and, people often think you know why are you making out of soy that's you know so like old school, but it's what the U.S. government dictates to the schools that they can use.
0: Which seems ironic. I imagine that's because that's what we're feeding to animals.
1: Well, it's what we're feeding to animals, but it's also, you know, long-standing policy decisions around um, what commodity products are supported by the U.S. government for the purposes of economic development. You know, we support farmers through a lot of different programs through the U, you know, the federal farm bill, and that is, you know, passed. I think every eight years or something like that, eight or ten years. And as a result, there are certain commodity products that are fundamentally supported either through, you know, crop loss insurance or um, subsidies or you know loss coverage, or guaranteed buying and and chicken and other meat products, cheese. Um, are all covered in some combination thereof of of guaranteed purchase programs with the U.S. federal government or the U.S. government. And so as a result, soy is one of those. And so uh, luckily, it exists a a, a Venn diagram between vegan nuggets, having them made out of soy, and being able to hit all the same nutritional requirements as you would get from chicken. Luckily, that actually does work out. So it is possible to to make really good plant-based chicken nuggets for the school lunch program.
0: Well, that's good. I'd love to go back to something you said earlier. You were quoting Bill Gates about synthetic beef. And I'm curious if you ever considered going into, say, clean meat, like growing cells uh, in a culture rather than in an animal.
1: Yeah, so the the rise of clean meat is a really fantastic innovation in the meat industry because it, it gives us the opportunity to provide animal-based meat products without the animal, and that's fantastic. It is a more complex procedure, at least at this point, than plant-based products. It also doesn't give us the opportunity necessarily to make other, to make, uh, to give to give consumers the benefits of plants that they might want from their meat alternative. Now, that being said, I am a huge fan of cultured or clean or cellular-based meat because it is a great meat alternative. If you're going to eat meat, you might as well and you want to don't want to eat plant-based meat for whatever reason. Cellular agriculture and um, and clean meat is a great solution to the amount of meat we produce in the United States. And it's real. It's exactly the same, molecularly the same as animal-based, you know, slaughtered meat. And so as a result, I'm, I'm a huge fan. And I really do think that as time goes on, more and more consumers are, sorry, more and more com- companies will see opportunities to combine the two. So right now, when you're buying a chicken nugget for, say, a national school lunch program, it is actually a combination of chicken and soy. Anyway, it's a plant-based meat and animal meat hybrid anyway. And a lot of our processed meat products in the United States are actually do have some plant protein in it. And often it's soy the same could be true for the future of cultured meat or clean meat is that we I can definitely see an opportunity where we've got hybrids between clean meat and plant-based and it's it's still technically a vegan product depending on your definition of vegan but it you know it, it meets all those criteria for you know not being so hard on the environment you know not having an animal welfare component to it or, or you know avoiding the animal welfare problems um and, and, and being lower or essentially not having antibiotics in it. That's another really good thing. And so all of those things are, are hugely beneficial for clean meat as well as plant-based. And I, I see it as one industry, meat alternatives.
0: You've done a great job of articulating your mission. How has that helped you in growing the company, uh, whether that's recruiting, fundraising, otherwise?
1: <laughs> yeah. You know, I think that our mission is actually a little more complex than a lot of companies in the same space because a lot of startups, and there are a lot of startups, really, really good startups, in fact, that are making new plant-based products, so new plant-based bacon or new plant-based Um, even chicken products, new plant-based burgers. And what's really unique about what we're doing, obviously, is that our intellectual property, in addition to our wonderful recipes and our really quality products, is our manufacturing technology behind the scene. What I think a lot of people see when they think about the opportunity to work at Rebellious Foods is that we have the ability to realize a long-term vision. And what I mean by that is that, you know, some of the latest expectations for the size of the global size of the plant-based meat industry is expected to reach maybe $85 billion in the next, you know, nine years or something like that, up from, you know, $1 or $2 billion right now. So that's a huge increase, but it's not necessarily going to be filled by people, by consumers who are willing to pay three or four times the cost of animal-based meat when they purchase plant-based meat. What we have at Rebellious Foods and Seattle Food Tech is the ability to realize that future market, to bring that future market to fruition because we expect to be able to fill a lot of that demand through cost-competitive plant-based meat as a result of the fact that we're solving the manufacturing bottlenecks that are keeping plant-based meat production too high in terms of cost. So I think where a lot of people What people like to do when they come to Rebellious Foods and Seattle Food Tech is this idea that they are in this for the long haul, that we're in this to truly be a a transformational company for the meat industry, not just to add another product to the market. And not that that's not good too. It is. I am a big consumer of really great plant-based meat products, but I need our company to take it one step, actually about a hundred steps further than that, and really dive into the market of consumers like school lunches, like cafeterias, like stadiums, who are not going to pay three times as much for their burgers or their chicken nuggets um, versus the consumers that are currently driving the market right now.
0: That goal of making plant-based meat more accessible unites the people at your company, and you articulate it well. I'm curious, what, how you think about culture for the employees, given that you've got some manufacturing, operationally focused people, and some people who are more R and D, creating the new thing. And does that ever clash?
1: You know, I'm really glad that you asked that because in reality, yes, it does sometimes clash. And here's a really, really good example. Our facility in West Seattle is 21,000 square feet. It consists of food production space. It consists of a, a little cute little cafeteria for the team to eat their lunches. And it consists of a big warehouse. And then we have a research and development lab kind of tucked into the side between a couple of other freezers. We obviously have big freezers. We have some coolers that are decommissioned because we don't use coolers at our company. We only use freezers. And as a result, we often find these interesting conflicts such that, for example, at our company, our facility is what's called safe quality food certified or SQF certified. And what that means is that we are qualified as a food production facility to sell into major area grocery stores, in fact, global grocery stores, because we've taken food safety so seriously. However, that puts a huge restriction on our research team. They're not allowed to go into certain parts of the building. Um, sometimes they might want access to different types of ingredients if we have to separate it out. Um, we have to make sure they don't bring any, you know, specialized prototyping tools too, too close or in, in any kind of, you know, barrier area to the production floor. And it also means everything that we do to design new research, new, new novel production equipment has to be done in in the demonstration area, the demonstration lab, and not on the production floor itself this obviously is really kind of frustrating to them because they're just like, well, if I just did it on the production floor, that would be so much easier. Well, we can't do that. We have to kind of replicate the production floor elsewhere in our facility, you know, and do kind of the testing there because we don't want to ruin any of the certification commitments to our safe quality food or SQF certification. So we're very, very careful about that. So that's where, you know, some of the conflict comes in between, you know, the future of plant-based meat and the the realization of the production of plant-based meat. And while that is a conflict, it also is the opportunity that we always needed, believed was necessary in order to really move the needle on making the next generation of plant-based meat production equipment. Because even though the research team has to work in this kind of oddly shaped isolated area off to the side, they are well-educated in the true nature of having to make plant-based meat, which includes the sanitary food safety and logistical constraints of producing in a safe quality food facility. So what's really unique about our research team is not only are they are they creative and innovative and coming up with the right food processing techniques and equipment but they're also doing so with that with that you know elbow to elbow knowledge of what it's going to take to deploy that equipment when it goes out to a safe quality food factory like ours does that make sense
0: I think you're almost saying that constraints promote more creativity
1: I think so exactly they certainly they certainly promote more applicability if that makes sense you know we know what we're doing in our research lab is going to be incredibly deployable to either our facility or other facilities or even partner facilities because we know it's going to be safe quality food qualified because It was made in a facility that we knew about those restrictions ahead of time. So things like sanitary seals and and proper uh, clean in place design of our equipment is built into the research that we're doing for the next generation of plant-based meat production equipment.
0: Now you mentioned the size of your facility. I'm curious if you can share any other numbers, employees, uh, revenues, customers, fundraising
1: our revenues are a little funny because they've been hurt very badly by the pandemic. So I'll tell you this, uh, I'll start with the other numbers first. The first number is that yes, we're in a 21,000 square foot food production facility. 10,000 square feet of that is active food production. The rest of it is either research or warehouse or dock area. And it's, it's packed to the gills right now, or we actually converted one of the freezer, or pardon me, refrigerators that we didn't need anymore into the office space. So we actually use that as the kind of the hub of the office space over there. So we always call it our little freezer. It reminds me of an old uh, video from from Sesame street where all the, all the uh, vegetables were being interviewed in the freezer. (laughs) So anyway, when you call me at my office, I usually am in the freezer or the cooler, my cooler office. So that's, that's what we use the facility right now. There are 33 employees and revenues. um, Most of our revenue has been in the, you know, $50,000, you know, ish uh, range for $50,000 or so is basically kind of what we hit in 2020. And that's not, really because obviously we weren't capable of producing more that was because we were having to go into the CPG market now The sky is the limit because since since we launched into the CPG market full scale earlier this year, it has gone up a lot. So our revenues are still very, very early stage. You can think of us as a very, very early stage startup because we had to restart our marketing sales and distribution with a brand new market in the retail world. We actually launched those retail products, those mainstream retail products on February 1st of this year. So it's only been two months. So I'll I'll keep the numbers to myself, but they're looking a lot better than (laughs) 50,000.
0: Wonderful. Well, fingers crossed on that. Thank you. I'm curious if you could tell us uh, about fundraising and what that process has been like for you.
1: So fundraising has been a really interesting experience for our company because we're obviously at a really, really white hot market that is getting promoted by some of the thought leaders of the world like Bill Gates. At the same time, we're a very unusual plant-based meat company because we're not just making products and selling products. That's the business model of Beyond Meat, right? They make really amazing products and then they sell amazing products. They don't necessarily produce their own products, but that's what we do at Rebellious Foods: is we design our own products and we sell our own products. We also make our own products, and then we design the equipment to make our own products. And so, what we often find is that we kind of need a, a couple different types of investors to support our efforts. In that, we need we need investors who understand the potential of redesigning food production equipment so that it's properly designed, arranged, and functional for the production of plant-based proteins versus animal-based proteins. And then we also need investors who understand uh, the potential of a CPG product that just got launched two months ago. And then we also need investors who truly understand the value of owning and operating your own production in a very, very tight industry of food production. There are very low margins in food production. There's a lot of risk and a lot of companies, a lot of startups are really asking for investors to just to invest in the brand and the product and they let somebody else deal with the production. Now that gets a lot of, small startups into some trouble because they don't own their own production they can't control their own production and we can now we've taken on that risk i think we've done it very well in fact we've done it so well we got it sqf certified so that gives us not only a higher level of risk although i think we've managed the risk pretty well because we're already certified but it also means that we have this incredible amount of flexibility meaning that if if Jack in the box came to us today and said, hey, we wanna roll out plant-based chicken burgers at a hundred of our stores in the Pacific Northwest, can you make enough for just a hundred of our stores? A typical company, a ty- typical startup would not be able to do that because they've got minimums for their contract manufacturers. We can do that. And we can do small amounts to large amounts and we can make it on the fly. Meaning if somebody came to us and needed you know, say a hundred or sorry, our minimum is 500 pounds, but if they needed just 500 pounds for a trial at a fast food company, company we would be able to support that in you know a matter of weeks which would be pretty is is pretty amazing and therefore we have the capacity to capture customers like fast food customers or you know customers that may have special needs like when schools open up we just want to make only nuggets right but we don't know when schools are opening up because it's going to be different in every state our company has that flexibility because we own and operate our own production to be able to, to pivot on a dime and make plant based tenders and burgers one day. And then overnight, you know, hey, Texas school districts all opened up tomorrow. We can start making nuggets right this very second.
0: So, vertical integration offers you flexibility and resilience, which you've demonstrated like last year, but it also makes for a more complex story and a more open minded investor.
1: Yeah, it does. And I think where where I've come to is that the investors that have to be part of our team there, there's just there isn't there isn't one investor that really spans that entire thing the food industry is huge it's complex and so as a result finding a branding uh, knowledgeable investor and finding a food processing equipment knowledgeable investor is just not the same investor but we do make sure that every investor who comes to work with us is fully understands that we are a technology company. We truly are. We're an engineering company, almost first and foremost. We're a production company and we're a CPG company. And while we're all in this together, <laughs> while we're all in this together, you know, there's going to be highs and lows of each, but we believe we're all better together. And that's why I think investors, you know, ultimately make the choice to work with us.
0: Would you recommend to other founders that they do an accelerator program like you did?
1: Yes, And I do think it's valuable. In fact, we've actually done two accelerator programs. We went through the Y Combinator program in 2018, and that was extremely helpful to help us get off the ground, start making products, get some of our first customers, get into a few cafeterias. It really got got us off into the right foot when we first started to really get product out to customers in early 2019. And I really do credit Y Combinator for for helping me as a founder, for helping us as a company get started. And be able to kind of make some good early decisions. But it wasn't the only accelerator that I found incredibly beneficial. In 2020, um, so just last year, between about April and June-ish or of 2020, I believe, we were also part of the SoftBank Emerge Accelerator. And they also invested in us. And as a result, it, it helped us gain access to that wider food industry investor group that was extremely helpful to us, not only from the opportunity to work together as investors and, and startup, But also from the perspective of what we were doing, you know, what we were doing was of interest to many people in the food industry who may have connections to fast food companies or connections to universities that would love to support some of the research work. So there was a lot of different opportunities. Essentially, it provides you a kind of instantaneous network. And both of the Y Combinator and the SoftBank Emerge Accelerators both provided us with different, very different but um, very effective instantaneous networks.
0: Which sounds like it's very helpful. You you were transitioning industries from aerospace to food. Uh, any advice for founders on, on how to do that?
1: Yeah, I'd say <laughs> uh, keep an open mind. <laughs> it's always... Uh... Always an important thing. And you know, obviously you have to learn a lot of new things. But for me, there were there were a couple of things I felt like I had to learn and a couple of things that I felt like I had to just transition in terms of skill set. For so, so for example, when I was at Boeing Commercial Airplanes. I worked on budgets a lot, I worked on managing engineers a lot, I worked on technical strategy a lot. So those were things that were transferable skills from my work at a a large enterprise company like Boeing, but that I could easily utilize those skills as part of an engineering startup, an engineering technology startup, which of course is what I started. Where there was a lot of learning to do, especially for someone like me who doesn't cook and I, you know, doesn't really know that much about food, was the food industry and really learning about the food industry. And so one of the things that actually brought me a little bit of relief when I realized how much I needed to learn about the food industry was that about 50% or more of people who work in the food industry never studied to be in the food industry, came from other industries. And I find that to be more and more true. So You know, learning the food industry is a lot like going into any other industry where you may have the skills as a chemical engineer or a mechanical engineer, but applying it to this new industry is just another dimension to your resume. Now, the food industry is particularly complex. Aerospace is a highly regulated, a highly, you know, safety conscious industry. And so is the food industry. It's highly regulated, it's highly safety conscious. So those things were similar. But what you did not have at Boeing commercial airplanes was essentially that component of food safety and and essentially moving around biomaterials like wheat and soy and oils and things like that. <laughs> um, we made airplanes out of, you know, aluminum and plastics and things like that. They, they never went bad. They never like, you know, start smelling bad in the fridge or, you know, <laughs> none, of, none of those things happen in an aerospace industry. So uh, we learned really, really quickly about, you know, the potential for, you know, in the laboratory, you know, bacteria growth and, you know, we never had to fry anything at a Boeing commercial airplanes. I find the food industry to be actually quite a bit more complex than the aerospace industry. So hope nobody in the aerospace industry is too offended, but it's really complex in the food industry.
0: Wow. I I learned something that, that food is, is harder than aerospace. That's amazing. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for coming on. How, How can people follow you online?
1: Yeah, the best place to learn about what we're doing is to go to our website, rebellious.com. So R-E-B-E-L-Y, like belly, Y-O-U-S, so rebellious.com. And, and look at the, you know, what we've got offering there, but I also highly recommend going to our YouTube channel for rebellious foods, again, spelled with a Y um, and check out all of our videos there because we, we run a very active um, channel, uh, not only showing the types of things that we're doing at the factory, talking about the issues of why we do what we do, but we also run a campaign for our products called uh, tested by all approved by all. And you can see all sorts of fun videos about the people who have tried our products, which is, I won't give it away, but they're tons of fun.
0: (laughs) I look forward to checking that out again. Thank you so much for coming on.
1: Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it.
0: If you liked what you heard today on the podcast, be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast player, and please give us a rating and review. The reviews help others find us. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and you can follow me on LinkedIn. Be sure to visit our website, startupsforgood.com. That's startupsforgood, all run together, no spaces.com. If you are inspired today and wanna to join our online community or our giving circle, please do so on our website.